0: Please open your Bibles again to chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew. We've noted before that uh, this whole scene really goes together uh, from verses 13 to the end of the chapter, but we're uh, progressing slowly through it, and so we'll be looking in particular this morning, the Lord willing, at verses 21 through 28. So let's hear this then as the Lord's word to us. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his life, well, what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, you notice an interesting parallel to our passage. There, right after the temptation is recounted by Matthew in chapter 4, uh, he says in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That exact opening expression from that time, Jesus began, occurs in our text, as you can see. Uh, This uh, may in part be a way of of Matthew setting out his gospel in two distinct sections. Uh, Now, the the biblical writers never wrote according to an an outline, uh, but sometimes pointers like this sort of show us the flow of their thoughts. So, So if that be the case, and I I think it probably is, we're given then, in in these verses that we read today, we're given a a pivotal turning point in Jesus' teaching ministry. Okay, He he has been preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. We've seen him doing that all the way through through the gospel to the crowds as well as to his disciples. And, And now... From this time on, Jesus will begin to show his disciples. There's a slight difference in the verb there, isn't there? He was preaching, now he's going to show his disciples something. And I think we could say, in a sense, he's going to show his disciples the real significance of what he has been preaching. I think he's going to show his disciples why he has come, proclaiming his kingdom by preaching repentance. And he is going to begin to, to, to reveal for them, in a way they've not yet seen, what it means for him to bring his kingdom. So this is a very important uh, important uh, passage, uh, important thing for us to, to notice as we uh, begin this passage. Uh, what is it? That Jesus has waited till this particular point in his ministry to begin to show his disciples. Just to refresh your minds, we, we've seen a progression in his public ministry, which has been centered mainly in Galilee. We've seen a progression there, and part of that progression has been a, a, an intensification of resistance to his message, hasn't it? We have seen him preach that message of repentance over and over again. Probably every day of the couple of years of his ministry, his public ministry, he's been preaching that. And by and large, the crowds have ignored it. His call to repentance has been met with stubbornness and refusal. People have been far more interested in getting their physical ailments healed or in getting a free meal than in his message of repentance. And we have seen him proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that cra- those crowds just seem to, well, they just seem to take it in stride, not notice, you know, no hint at some widespread re- preparing for the kingdom at all. And, of course, we've seen the religious establishment, those religious elite we see in our text there, that, If you want to go back to our text and and skip down uh, toward the end, he mentions that he's going to suffer at the hands there in verse, uh, well, it's not at the end, it's at the beginning in verse 21. He's going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That's that's the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body. That's the religious and political elite in Israel that... He, he, we've seen an intensification of their overt hatred toward him, their resistance to his message, their, their despising, really, of his person. And, and they're beginning to, to try to think of any way to shut this prophet up. So all that's gone on Leading up to this particular scene. Remember, Jesus took his disciples north out of Galilee. He wanted wanted some time with just them. And and here, perhaps, is the real reason he's done that. Now, he has led the disciples with Simon as their spokesperson to acknowledge him as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Do you remember that from... From the passage we looked at last Lord's Day, uh, Simon Peter said, you are the the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Living One. Jesus pronounced a blessing on him for that. So, So they've come to the point where at least they're beginning to know who he is. At least they're getting the right titles associated with him. But now he's got to give them the right content for that. Because it is very clear from our text, isn't it, that the disciples don't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ the way he understands it. They do not understand the purpose for the Son of God in coming to earth the way he understands it. So this is a critical point, and, and, and I want you to think that this is a critical point for you in your spiritual pilgrimage. I want you to be aware that it, it's not just the fact that you assent to who Jesus is with your mouth, that you profess your faith in him as the Christ, as the Messiah. You need to understand correctly what that means. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. So Jesus begins our text then with giving them that content, Here's what it means for me to be the Christ. That's, in effect, what he's saying. I must, notice that verb, I must. This is necessary. This is indispensable. This is at the heart of who I am as the Christ. I must go to Jerusalem I must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. I must be killed. I must be raised again on the third day. As we've often noted, but it should be repeated, Jesus is not a victim of circumstances. He is always in control. He is in charge of circumstances. They're not in charge of him. And he wants his disciples to be very aware of that. What you're going to witness happen to me, he says, is by my design, by my will, I am purposing this. And in fact, he'll repeat that four more times in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read where Jesus refers to his suffering and his death. Is it letting the disciples know that he is in control even of that? Well, it's too much for Peter, isn't it? <laughs> and again, I think we want to see Peter here as speaking for all the disciples, okay? If, if we're going to view him as speaking for all the disciples earlier, when he professes that when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, I think we We can assume he's speaking for all the disciples here. What Jesus has just described to them does not fit their view of what it is for him to be the anointed one, the Christ. This is not the kind of Messiah they're looking for. and That's the bottom line, right? And Peter is very assertive here, isn't he? Uh, The one that he has just confessed to be the Son of God, he pulls aside to correct. (laughs) Can you believe it? The one who he claims to be a student of, remember disciple means student essentially, The one he as a student claims to be his teacher, he's going to teach him. And not only that, he's going to teach Jesus about Jesus. Uh, How foolish, how foolish he is, how foolish we are, aren't we? When we take it upon ourselves to tell God what he ought to be doing. Now, I'm sure you, you probably never do that. You never say, God, you ought to be doing this. You know, God, I don't know why you're not doing that. You know, but Maybe you don't, I do. What audacity, isn't it, when we do that kind of thing? Peter takes him aside, began to rebuke him. Interesting parallel there, isn't there? Jesus began to show them this. Peter began to rebuke him. <laughs> There's a real sense, it seems, from the text, Peter interrupts him. Okay? Doesn't want to embarrass Jesus, wants to be nice to Jesus, so he pulls him aside. You know, he's not going to correct him on in, in front of everybody. <laughs> I mean, there is such condescension in Peter's attitude here, isn't there? Takes him aside, begins to rebuke him. And the language is very strong here. My translation as far be it from you, Lord. I mean, he is at least calling Jesus Lord, Master. Not sure he's uh, really acting as though the Lord is his Master at all. Uh, The the expression he uses here is probably out of a Hebrew expression, which which is very strong. Far be it from you. That sort of sounds formal, stilted. Probably you get closer to the meaning of what he says here, if you follow some translations, and say, God forbid, by the mercy of God, this is not going to happen to you. And in fact, the the second sentence there is is emphasized too as well. There's in effect in the Greek three negatives. This absolutely is never not going to happen to you. What's, what's Peter thinking? What, what's his mistake? That's, that's one question you want to ask yourself. What mistake is Peter making that I sure don't want to make myself? Okay. Well, it's more than mistake. He, just, he hasn't just got the wrong answer for a math problem or something like that. Uh, he's... He's really crossed the line, and Jesus, in no uncertain terms, lets him know it. If Peter was assertive in rebuking Jesus, Jesus trumps that with his response. Maybe you can picture it in your mind. You know, Jesus began doing this teaching, and and Peter comes up and sort of takes him by the arm, pulls him aside, and starts to explain to him how things really are. Verse 23, he turned. I think he turns his back on Peter right there. Okay, Peter's been taking him aside. I think he turns his back on Peter at that moment and says, Get behind me, Satan. Get out of my sight. This is a very strong term. I don't want to look at you when you're saying that kind of thing. And then, of all things, he calls Peter Satan. There's not a harsher rebuke in all the Gospels that I could find. He'll tell the Pharisees they're sons of Satan. (laughs) But he won't call them Satan. What is going on here? Why is he responding so, so harshly, so shockingly, really? Well, it's because Peter, I think, is saying Satan's words. In fact, this expression that Jesus uses here, get behind me, Satan, is very similar to what you see back in chapter 4 of Matthew, where Jesus is tempted by Satan. And, and And Jesus says to Satan there, be gone. It's very similar what he says here. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you are speaking the words of the accuser. That's what he's saying. And I simply will not tolerate it. He goes on. That's not all of his rebuke. You are a hindrance to me. Literally, the word there is a stumbling stone. You're something to trip over now. The rock on which Christ will build his church, of a few verses earlier, has become a stumbling stone. I don't think that's coincidental. I think that's in the text to, to grab our attention. Simon Peter was a rock when he confessed faith in Christ as the Christ, the Son of God, the Living One. When he tells... Jesus, that he is not going to suffer and die, Simon Peter is a stumbling stone. You're just trying to trip me up, he says. Well, here is the essence of what is wrong. Then what Jesus says next. And here's where you really want to be listening yourself. Make sure you're not, you don't put yourself in Peter's place here. You want to be in his place in those verses earlier, where you're confessing Jesus as Lord, as the anointed one. You don't want to be in Peter's place in this particular scene. Look at the last part of verse 23, what else Jesus says to Peter. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's basically two ways of thinking, Jesus is saying. There's the natural way that is common to every human being. It's the way they think from the moment of conception and birth and life and all the way to death. It's their natural way their natural inclination. There's a human, an earthly, a fleshly way of thinking. And then there is a thinking that is focused on the things of God. There is a thinking that is a thinking of God's thoughts after Him, that is a thinking in line with what what God teaches in His Word. You are born with that human way of thinking just as the disciples were. But when the Holy Spirit causes you to be born again, gives you life through union with Christ by faith, you are given a new way of thinking. We could say you are given a new mind. Okay? Here's the way Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you have indeed been saved, if you've been born again, if you have life in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You've been given a new way of thinking, Engage that new way of thinking. Paul is saying there. Think from a heavenly perspective. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Think from a divine perspective. Think from a perspective that gets you out of this present moment. Don't you realize this moment is passing? It's, It's going to be gone. You'll never get it back again. Don't you want to be thinking More broadly. In fact, thinking above all that is temporary and passing, thinking from an eternal perspective, that's what Paul is saying. You've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He goes on to say, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You've died to this world, your life is with Christ. That's where you're going to be for eternity. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says something very similar in Romans chapter 8. He contrasts these two ways of thinking that we've been uh, uh, considering. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he goes on to say, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And Paul goes on to say, he's addressing Christians here, and so he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. Your body is dying. It's, it's not going to last forever. It's dying right at this moment. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you can see where he's going with this, right? He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Why would you then want to be thinking in this earthly way still? Your future is in eternity. And to think like that, Paul says, tells us in Philippians, is really to have the mind of Christ which you have if you've been born again. He's given you his way of thinking this new way of thinking. And so he can speak to all of the church. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, if there is any of what you claim to have as a Christian body, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, does he mean we're going to be robots there? Is he, is, are we supposed to be a bunch of clones? No, no. What he's talking about is this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, you've been given this new way of thinking. Is it the way of thinking that Simon's expressed? I want a Messiah who's going to bring in the good times. I mean, we need to change a government here, right? To use the cat's phrase today, we need to change the system. It's the system that's wrong. It's those jerks that are in power. If we just had, if we just had good people and... Government, everything would be fine, wouldn't it? Just bring in your kingdom now, Simon's thinking. We want, we want to see the glory days again of David and Solomon. I, I mean, you're the son of David. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to drive out the Romans. You're supposed to get rid of all these foreigners in our midst. You're supposed to purify the nation. And we're going to go back to that time that's described in the Old Testament where every man sat under his vine and had his own fig tree, and and there was peace, and just things were good. You know, so much gold, that silver was practically worthless. That's what we're looking for. That's the human way of thinking. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for something to meet my needs now. I'm looking for something that's going to feel good now. I'm looking, to use the language of today, I'm looking for my ultimate self-esteem and self-expression. That's what life is about. It's about discovering who I am. God's supposed to help me with that. He's supposed to have everything smoothed out for me so life is happy ever after. That's what I'm looking for. And Jesus says, that's not what you're going to get if you follow me. Because that's not the direction I'm going. So he says in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter, you are not going to go the direction I'm going unless you're going to die. Unless you're going the path of self-denial. There are a lot of people who go by the name of Christian today, especially in our culture, who think they can keep Christ as Savior and build their self-esteem. Focus on their self-expression. Focus on their self-fulfillment. The two are incompatible. They're incompatible because that's not the kind of Christ who revealed himself. Jesus did not come to earth for self-fulfillment. He did not come to earth to build up his self-esteem. He didn't come to, the, to, to earth to, for the flowering of himself. He came repeatedly, he says to us, to do the Father's will. As Paul pointed out there in Philippians, he came to humble himself. So how on earth can Simon or any Christian today think they can follow Christ in a way that builds themselves up. It's just not going to happen. It's interesting, isn't it, that oftentimes we tend to try to make it real easy for people to be Christians. We talk about the blessings that come with that. We talk about the good things that... Jesus seems to do just the opposite. You ever notice that? Somebody comes and wants to be his disciple, and Jesus says, well, realize that might mean you're homeless, because I'm homeless. Okay? I don't don't even have a place to sleep tonight. Don't own a bit of property. Or someone says, "Uh, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, "Uh, no problem. For you, all you got to do is give away everything you have and get in line behind the disciples. Here, it's most explicit, isn't it? He's already said this back in chapter 10, but it's being fleshed out more here. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. If you're a Christian today in this culture, you are living exactly opposite to this culture. Because this culture is all about self-fulfillment. The expressive self is dominating our culture. And it's not enough for me just to be able to express myself. This is the spirit of the age. It's not not enough just for a person to be able to express themselves to to call themselves whatever they want, to dress themselves however they want, to put any kind of cosmetics on that they want, even to, even to use chemicals and surgery on their body to define who they, that's not enough. You have to approve it as well. Because you see, I'm expressing myself. And so you've got to affirm that self if you want to be a part of this culture. That's what your culture is saying to you. And you're gonna to have to stand in the face of that culture and say no. No, my Lord shows self-denial. So that's the way that I have to follow. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross. It's really hard for us to, to hear the shocking quality of that because we're so used to crosses that are beautiful and pretty and hanging on our walls or around our necks. But when Jesus says this to disciples, the disciples, the only, the only way that you see somebody taking their cross, wearing their cross, is when they're carrying the cross beam on their way to be executed. they are going to see Jesus carry his cross after he's been flogged repeatedly. Jesus says, that's what you're to do. he is calling you to die to self why is that necessary why is it nece- simon obviously doesn't think this is necessary for the messiah he's misunderstood two things i think he's misunderstood the gravity of human sin. He does not have a realistic understanding of human sin. He does not see it for the repulsive and hateful thing that it is. If it's an earthly messiah we need, we don't need our sins dealt with if it's a good life now I need, I don't need my sins dealt with. I just need things paved out so they're a little bit easier for me. But if, if my real condition is that my sin has placed me under the wrath of God and that the wrath must be satisfied in order for his kingdom to come, okay, that the perfect kingdom, that kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness, in order for that kingdom to come, sin has to be dealt with. I mean, it's just heavenly logic, isn't it? If you're going to have a perfect kingdom, how can you have sin in it? It's got to be dealt with. The wrath of God has to be poured out on that sin to purify his kingdom. Simon does not have a a good grasp on that yet. And I think he's he's undervaluing something else as well. He's undervaluing the glory and the magnificence of the kingdom. (laughs) Poor Simon is still thinking that the kingdom means Means plenty of food and a comfortable life here on earth. Jesus has something far more glorious in mind for his people. He he, he has he he has a, a kingdom that it, it is beyond our description in in human words. John's given that revelation in the book of Revelation, and toward the end we see, we see that vision that he sees of a, the bride of Christ. Okay, that, that's the church, that's the assembly of God's people, that's his kingdom, the bride of Christ coming down from heaven, and what he sees in his vision is this incredibly glorious city it's a it's a perfect cube golden shining glorious the next chapter is described as a place where there is no sickness where god wipes away every tear where, where there's not even any any need for light because the glory of god shines in his presence upon his people Simon's missed, he doesn't have yet an understanding of the depravity of sin, the, the need of human beings, and the glory of salvation. And so, so for his sake and for ours, Jesus goes on. And notice in verses 25 through 27, you have, you, you have three uses of the conjunction For. Okay, so all those verses sort of hang on what he's just said. Okay, so he has just called you to self-denial, to take up your cross, to live a life of self-denial and death, dying to self. And so in these verses, it's like he's saying, okay, this is why you do that. Isn't God gracious to give you reasons for obedience? I mean, think about it. God would be fully within his rights just to tell you to do something and not explain at all while you're doing it. And yet he is so gracious. Look at the reasons he gives here to encourage you to this life of self-denial. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's that heavenly logic coming in, okay? Why would you want to live this life of self-denial? Well, it's because, it's because if you choose self-satisfaction, if you're trying to save your life, if you're living for self, you're going to lose it in the end. You cannot keep it. But if you choose to deny yourself, to lose your life, to lay down your life for my sake, Jesus is saying, you're going to find it. And it's not just life for a few years here on this earth, it's eternal life. And here's another reason, verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? You can have everything this world can offer, Jesus is saying. And what good is it when you die? What could possibly be worth your eternal life? I mean, to ask the question is to answer, Right? Nothing that you gain, not a career, not a spouse, not children, not, not achievement in this world, nothing in this life could be worth your eternal soul. I love the little kid's story by Hans Christian Anders on The Little Mermaid, not the Disney version. <laughs> okay. In Anderson's fairy tale, the driving passion of the Little Mermaid, what she wants more than anything else, is to have an eternal soul. As a mermaid, she could live forever on Earth. Okay? She could have all the pleasures of life on Earth as a mermaid but she sacrifices it all and chooses death so that she can have an eternal soul. I think Anderson's got her text in mind with that. Verse 27, next reason. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There is an eternal reckoning. There's a reckoning at the end of life that every person will make. Why deny yourself for my sake? Because I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Those who have denied themselves, those who have responded to my command to repent, those who have denied themselves, I will own as my own. Those who have chosen themselves and chosen to deny me instead, I will deny. For eternity. And he closes our text with a promise, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I think when we get into chapter 17, some more about what what that possibly means, specifically for the disciples. But I, I want you to notice at least one thing here. I love that phrase, taste death. If you're a believer, if you've denied yourself, if you've taken up your cross and followed Jesus, you're going to taste death. But it's only going to be a taste. (laughs) The Lord delays his coming. There may come a time when you close your eyes on this earth and you open them in eternity. You'll taste death. Those who deny Christ, however, will be consumed by death in hell. You're going to taste death as a believer. You're going to taste death when you put self to death. This isn't an easy thing. Do we think it was easy for Jesus to go this way? Do we think it was easy for him to deny himself, to allow himself to be beaten by people that he could obliterate with a word? Do we think it was easy for him to agonize in the Garden of Gethsemane and plead with the Father, take this cup from me, And yet to go on and say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You're going to taste death being a follower of Christ. You're going to to have to die to yourself. There are things in you that have to die because they're of sin. And that is not going to be an easy process. Some of you know from experience that it's not an easy process because you're probably farther along than I am and in sanctification, and you've experienced that putting to death of self and flesh. You're going to taste death, but it's going to be, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. The toughest sacrifices that you will make in this life as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, the toughest sacrifices you make will be like nothing to you in glory. And not only that, by God's grace, they will bring you closer to him in this life even. Because the more that you die to self, the more you live to Christ. And you know his presence and know love with him in a far deeper way as you deny yourself. And you have his promise. You will see him coming in his kingdom. And you will be a part of that kingdom. The glory awaits all those who endure the suffering. And that's why Jesus endured it, isn't it? Hebrews tells us. For the joy set before him, it says, he suffered and died. And you're called for the joy set before you, a joy you cannot even imagine right now. You're called to follow him. And self-denial let's pray together only father we acknowledge that that this has to be something that you do in us and through us we are not in our human nature a self-denying people it's just not it's just not in our sinful nature to deny ourselves and to put you first, and so we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that would would open our our minds uh, to this new way of thinking that would enable us to to see life from the perspective that you have here, and and would would see even in the even in the process of self-denial and and living in submission to you a joy and a fellowship with you in your suffering Uh, we pray lord that you would do that work in us for your glory and for our good in jesus name we pray amen